This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Territory Story Podcast. My co-host, Mr. Peter Gowers, uh, is here with us as well. Pete, how are you, mate? G'day, my friend. How are you? I'm well. I'm going to have to stop talking about the weather because uh, I embarrassed myself the other day. Um, we recorded uh, Tracy Hayes' podcast, uh, I think on Wednesday last week, and then we released it on Sunday. Between mm. Wednesday and Sunday, we had a massive shift in... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was almost climate change before our eyes. <laughs> so we went uh, from stinking hot. I was complaining about how hot it was and I had the air conditioning on. And then when the, the day we released the podcast on the Sunday, it was Darwin typical dry season cool. I've been uh, I've been watching the banter on social media uh, with a, a bit of a smirk, with all the whinging about how freezing it is and having to dust off jumpers, etc. Uh, I'm I'm expecting two degrees tonight, Leon, and the uh, the the top temperature today was 15 degrees. So even at your cool climbs, it uh, is still uh, quite a bit cooler than you. And uh, and uh, I can see you, but our, our listeners obviously can't. And you've got a brand new uh, jumper that is what sheepskin lined or something, is it? Yeah, <laughs> brand new. It's like four times as thick as a normal jumper, and it's sheepskin lined with a hood with sheepskin in it as well. So it's I got to admit, it's keeping me pretty warm. But yes, I, I, I long for the day when that uh, I get that call to say yes, we're all good to go. Anyway, well, uh, we have got a very uh, special guest on the podcast uh, today, and uh, his name is Steph Lady. I met him through um, Peter Savoff, uh, who runs the Darwin Entertainment Centre, and uh, one of Peter's employees is uh, Steph's wife, and. Um, through that, in fact, through them listening to the podcast, believe it or not, Pete, um, mm. I ended up catching up with them a few months ago and uh, I was talking to um, Sandra and uh, from her accent I realised that she was from America and we had a bit of a talk about that and 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 then we spoke about her, her family and her husband who is um, a screenwriter from mm. Hollywood. Yep. And I just thought, my goodness, we've got to get that guy on the podcast because he might yeah. have a, a story or two to tell us. <laughs> he may indeed. I, I, I will just correct you on one point. What's that? I, I think it's Darwin Convention Centre. What did I say? Entertainment Centre. Oh, sorry. Yep. Yes, yep. that was a, my bad. Convention Centre, correct. <laughs> so uh, without further ado... Welcome to the podcast, Steph. Well, thank you for having me. Welcome aboard, Steph. Strap thank in. We're going to take you on a ride. <laughs> Strapped in, Peter. <laughs> so you've got one uh, heck of a story to tell us, Steph, because it's not often that we get uh, an American on the podcast that actually lives here in Darwin. Uh, and as we were discussing before we started recording, it's unusual for Americans to migrate to Australia let alone uh, to migrate specifically to Darwin. Uh, 
Mm. So um, beginning with where you were born, could you give us your meandering story all the way to the NT? Well, that's a lot of meandering, Leon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll try to straighten that out a bit. Um, I was born in the, the very geographical center of the United States um, in a suburb of St. Louis uh, overlooking the Mississippi River, uh, maybe 20K from, from the CBD of St. Louis. And um, I, uh, it's, it's a... It's a it's it's an amazing town. Uh, we, we were just back there recently to, to, to visit some of my aging aunts. And uh, Alton, Illinois, um, touts itself as America's most haunted city. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and um, and you know it's uh, the home of uh, uh, Miles Davis, the great uh, jazz trumpeter. Uh, although you would never know it, there's not a single street, not a single school, mm. not a single statue, not a single note of Miles having li- lived there. Um, Why is that, Steph? Uh, well, it's a uh, you know Alton has a has a very uh, checkered history. Um, just to, just to be very brief about it, um, the the great American philosopher and essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson's brother. Uh, lived in uh, Alton and was published a uh, abolitionist newspaper prior to the Civil War. And there were so many uh, what they called copperheads in Alton. These were symp- uh, sympathizers with uh, slavery and, and the South that um, the good citizens of Alton, uh, a group of them got together one night and uh, dragged Emerson's brother out of his uh, a newspaper office lynched him, and then threw the uh, printing presses into the Mississippi River. Mm, gosh! And it was a, it was it was a it was a, it was a national scandal uh, in the in, in that time, and it really uh, cast a pall over Alton. Uh, at that time, Alton um, would have been a, a far better choice for a port on the river than St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis at that time was was a Pony Express stop. I mean, it was, it was, it was nothing. Um, but the um, sort of the curse of, of that event um, was, was so widespread and, and, and the ignominy of it for the city that, um, that St. Louis, they, all the business moved to St. Louis and they, and they moved the port out of Altman uh, to, at great uh, inconvenience. Uh, to to respond to you know to to that so you know it, it's that's the history of that that part of the country uh, the the worst race riots in American history happened in St Louis very few people know that no oh, I didn't know that I, was, I would have picked it as Birmingham Alabama of but, course you would Mississippi yeah, you know yeah. no in St Louis uh, uh, I think they uh, something like fifty black men were uh, hung from the street lamps. Uh, one 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 night of terror. Uh, so there's just a, there's just a long-standing um, uh, history of of racial tension in, in, in that part of America. Um, you know, 
Although, as you say, you know, you think of Alabama, but no, um, mm. Alabama's got nothing on, on on St. Louis. So anyway, uh, you know, I digress. But um, you know, my dad was a corporate guy, worked for General Motors, and so we became rather like gypsies. Uh, we lived in in Detroit, Cleveland, Oklahoma City, Texas, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco. Uh, you know, we every seemed like every couple of years we moved. Um, at one point, they um, put me in a boarding school in Michigan, a very elite, uh, very, very beautiful school. Uh, and I was going to school then with uh, um, the son of the of the uh, head of the CIA, uh, um, president president of General Motors' son, president of Ford's son. Uh, you know, those guys. The governor's son, Mitt Romney, was a classmate of mine. In the same year. Older, okay. Uh, he was older, but he was there when I was there. And uh, how do you get the name Mitt? By the way, <laughs> it's, it's, his real name is Willard. Okay, <laughs> and and that's why he got the name Mitt. <laughs> uh, and if if you want to, you know, if 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 you want to make fun of Mitt Romney, which I'm always happy to do, you know, we, yeah. call, him, we call him Willard. Right. <laughs> call him by his name. So, yeah, so call him by his name. Why did Mitt Romney go to a school in Michigan when I, I would have thought he was he was brought up in Utah, wasn't he? No, no, no. no. He was raised in Michigan. His father was governor of Michigan, uh, a, a rather progressive Republican uh, governor. Um, uh, speaking of of an extinct species, um, mm. it's quite a. Uh, it, it was he was a. a quite a popular governor of Michigan, um, an outspoken um, advocate of civil rights, um, a, a supported um, the unions, even though he was president of American Motors, which is you know, one of the, I guess, the fourth biggest car company. He was, he was not anti-union per se. I uh, got along well with Walter Ruther, head of the United Auto Workers. Uh, and then um, he became, I, I believe, Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare, or Secretary of Commerce, I can't remember which, during the, during the Johnson administration, and the Vietnam War was, was raging. And so Romney went, George Romney, not Mitt, George Romney went to Vietnam on, on the sort of uh, required tour. And he was... Um, he was slated to be the Republican candidate for governor, for president, rather. And when he came back, he spoke to the press and he said that the war wasn't going at all the way that the generals had described it before he went, and that he believed that he had been brainwashed in his support of the war. And the word brainwash just sent the American press into a tizzy, and, and his, his political career was finished simply by using that, that term. Wow. Uh, and again, I, you know, I, I do digress there, but, um, so then I, uh, um, I went to, I went to Berkeley, um, University of California, Berkeley. And, um, I, um, dropped out my senior year and started playing in bands, uh, traveled around, played in Oklahoma, a little bit in Texas, Dallas, Lived in Nashville for a while. Um, am, am I meandering enough? Is that enough meandering? No, it's a fantastic. Because I mean, you are just bouncing all over the US here, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying to keep up. And I'm actually, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, with, with all those moves, 
Did, was there any place that sort of stuck with you? Were there any sort of memories? I mean, you know, did you did you like one place in particular? Did you was was, was another place not so great? Well, you know, uh, nobody has much good to say about Cleveland. You know, but, <laughs> <laughs> that one goes I, I one, <laughs> I, one 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 interesting wrinkle of that story is that you know while I was going to this very 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 rigorous uh, uh, boarding school in, in Michigan, my family was living on the Mex- on the Mexican border in Texas in El Paso. And so I would come home in the summer and I had, you know, free reign in Mexico. Yes. And Juarez, right? Exactly. Ciudad Juarez. (laughs) And and for a teenage boy, Juarez was the the Disneyland of teenage domain. (laughs) Because Uh, of it, why? Why was it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, was, there was no age limit. Let's put it that way. Oh, okay. Right. And sure. I became, and I became actually the by my by my eleventh year, uh, I became really good friends with the son of the consul general, the Mexican consul general, a kid named Roberto Urea. Beautiful, beautiful guy. And uh, and so you know, his father was the ranking Mexican uh, uh, government authority and and Juarez. And so you know, we really had the run of the town. You know. Wow. But was, what Juarez wasn't obviously that dangerous back then. Oh my, it's changed. Oh, it's just, it's just, it just brings tears to my eyes. You know, the law then was that um, you could come into the United States along the border uh, up to 50 miles. And all you had to do was go back once a week <laughs> across the border, you know, across the border and you come back. And so it was a win-win. Yeah, uh, it was the best of both worlds because you know, uh, El Pe- you know the the border had unlimited skilled labor, skilled yeah. and unskilled, and and money was pouring into Juarez. American money was pouring into Juarez, and so the middle class was thriving. I mean, a lot of homes were being built, and and it was it was quite safe. Uh, I. I never felt unsafe uh, in yeah. wars. You know, I mean, maybe I was just naive as a kid, but I, I really didn't. Uh, it wasn't that; just wasn't the, the feeling. Now I, I went back there. I don't know. Now it's been maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago, but oh man, it looks like Afghanistan now. I mean, you know, machine gun turrets, you know, electrified fence. Nobody goes to Juarez to you know. I mean, back in the day, you know, half the kids in El Paso schools were Mexicans. They came across during the day on a bus. They paid a small fee. They went back. Uh, there was there was a, there was a, just a, a very healthy, you know, international exchange happening literally daily, and it was it was a wonderful time. What year was that? Uh, what, what what period? Well, that would have been you know that that was that was the truth about Juarez from really up until the from the nineteen forties all the way until um, I guess the. I guess the nineties, uh, you know, you know, that's the way it was. And, um, you know, you dated Mexican girls and, you know, I mean, it it was just normal, you know, that was just the Mm. life. But I, you know, I mean, the only reason I bring that up is that the contrast of this like brutally, you know, English, private school, you know, where, you know, we were, you know, getting up at four in the morning to study. And then coming home, you know, and hanging out in the cantinas yeah. in Mexico, man, it was it was lovely. 
I said, why did your parents send you to, to, to such a brutal school? Well, you know, they they thought it was it was you know it was quite an opportunity. It was very difficult to get into that school. And um, was it the one in Missouri or no, no, no? This is in Michigan. Michigan, it's, it's, Michigan. Yeah, it's a school called Cranbrook. But you know, there's Cranbrook in Sydney, by the way, too. Yeah, there is. Yeah. School, but, but no, it's um, uh, it, it it is. It is a school that's immoderately beautiful. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a national national landmark. Um, mm. uh, it's just absolutely stunning, um, and it's in the in the, uh, the the amount of art at that school is just unbelievable. You know, wasted on my sixteen-year-old <laughs> mentality. You know, um, did you have any brothers and sisters? I there? did. I did, and. Um, um, you know, they kind of stuck with the family, uh, you know, on the moves. And, and frankly, I don't think that they, I don't think that they thrived uh, behind it either. You know, right. you know, some people, some people, you know, make the best of that and kind of, kind of really thrive and, and, and new people, new places, new friends, and right. others, others have a very difficult time being transplanted like that. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, looking back on it, I can really see that my brother and sister, uh, you know, suffered in that life. But, you know, in those days, I mean, people, you know, you just did what you just did, whatever the company said. I mean, this, this idea of balance of family life and everything, ah, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not, not at all. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, I, you know, I, I, I was at Berkeley during some very interesting times. Um, what made you choose Berkeley? Oh, well, you know, it was the coolest place. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that, was where, that was where it was happening, you know. This is uh, in the 60s, right? Yeah. Late, late 60s, Late yeah. 60s, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I got there in time for, uh, you know, the invasion of Cambodia. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a very, very dynamic place. And then at the same time, right across the bridge, the Haight-Ashbury was happening. You know, the whole, the flower children and that whole thing. I lived in Haight-Ashbury one summer, Uh, uh, you know, between, you know, between like my, my second and third year, I I lived in in an old Victorian house in Haight-Ashbury and and that was interesting, you know. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I bet. Did you ever come across any of those, um, uh, you know, kind of crazy personalities back then that we still know about today? Oh, I just missed that. Pardon bit. me. Did you ever come across any of those uh, crazy '60s personalities that we that we hear about today? Oh yeah, I guess. I mean, um, you know, everybody talks about the Grateful Dead, right? You know, <laughs> the, the, the iconic, you know, hippie band, and but the Grateful Dead. I mean, they played they played all the time. I mean, I, you know, I'm like. Yeah. Phil Lesh, I knew, met Jerry a few times. You know, I mean, they, they were they were local guys. And that this, uh, although interestingly, I'm I'm on flash forward on you now, but I uh, in another incarnation in in the mid '80s, I ended up uh, bringing the first Soviet rock band to the United States. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? It was called. It was. It's a very very famous uh, Soviet band called Machina Vremium, which means time machine. Yeah, and, uh, you know any, I mean, just about anybody who's Russian will tell you. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's like 
have you heard of the Beatles or have you heard of Bob Dylan? <laughs> you know, Machine of yeah. Remian, right? Andrei Makarevich was the leader of that band. So anyway, the reason I bring that up is that when we, when we came to the United States and, and went on tour, uh, we played two or three dates opening for the Grateful Dead. Wow. wow. Uh, so that was a scene, you know? Yeah. Uh, what sort of music did you play? Uh, you know, just I just rhythm guitar, blues and country, you know, Americana yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, did a bit yeah. of singing, did, did a bit of singing, you know, but uh, nothing, nothing special. And, What's uh, your favorite song to sing on, Steph? I always like to know what people's go-to song is. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll sing a Johnny Cash song just about, you know, nice. anytime. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little Bob Dylan. You never know. Yeah. Woody, nice. Woody Guthrie. Mm. Some of that stuff, yeah. You know, anything that doesn't require a good voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, Bob, Dylan, Bob Dylan doesn't really sing, does he? He, he, sort of he used talks. to. <laughs> it, it, it's more like every time I've heard a Bob Dylan song, I feel like he's actually talking rather than singing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there was a time. There right. was a time. I mean, he just completely blew out his voice. Oh, mm. right. Uh, but he, yeah, he used to be able to sing. I mean, you know, he was a hill, it was hillbilly, but you know he, he could sing. You know, he could <laughs> yeah. definitely sing. But it was a brief period. It was about for about five years. Right. After that, it was gone. You know. Uh, so late sixties in Berkeley, California. I yeah. mean, I mean, there are many people that would, you know, give their their left arm to go back to that particular era, uh, and and that particular place uh, to relive. You know the Vietnam War protests and all those yeah. sort of things, and you know, acid and all that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, did, yeah. did you were, were you in there hook line and sinker? Or Ab- you absolutely. Just- <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we. Uh, uh, my- I'm waiting for a denial, then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you know, the statute of limitations protects me. <laughs> but you, you didn't inhale that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I thought Brock's answer was was better, and they said, "Did you inhale?" And he goes, "I thought that was the point." <laughs> <laughs> oh, true. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, like you know, my uh, my roommates uh, at Berkeley. We had an apartment on Blake Street, about two blocks from campus, and three bedroom apartment. And um, my one roommate. Uh, John King, his father w- was director of admissions at Harvard, and he had been the top student in biochemistry at Harvard. And wow. he and he was one of the Harvard students that occupied the administration building and occupied his own father's office. <laughs> wow! And and uh, and had his own father testify against him in court. <laughs> And oh, wow. and uh, and then uh, decided to transfer to Berkeley, so that was w- one roommate. Right. The other roommate was um, Richard Markell, who was the uh, uh, had an had an all night show on Saturday night on the campus radio station, playing Frank Zappa, <laughs> Captain Beefheart, you know, uh, Ed, Edgar Varese. I mean, just the most far out stuff you could imagine, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then my, the, another roommate was, um, uh, was a ma- in, in the master's program in, in arts, it's a very fine sculptor. A, lo- a lot of his stuff is, 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 in, is, is now in place in California cities. Um, 
And he was working with a very famous sculptor named Peter Volkus, who lived about three blocks from there. So we used to hang out with Peter Volkus as well. So, you know, it was wonderful, man. It was, it was, uh, you know, I don't remember much about class, but I, mean, I, was, <laughs> I was learning a whole lot, you know, I was, you know, I was learning a whole lot. My, my girlfriend was, uh, she, she had just graduated from Barnard College, Columbia in New York City, and she was a concert pianist. She had just come off tour with uh, Pablo Gasols. And, uh, and so that, you know, it was, it, these were, these were great, great times. Um, but mm. you know, on, on, on the out, on the outside, you know, we tend to forget that, you know, this, that part of the sixties was very, very uncomfortable in many ways. You know, we were estranged from families were estranged, a lot of tension. Oh my God, the Black Panthers were happening. Like the, the, my, the guy who lived upstairs from me was a full-blooded Sioux Indian, was, was uh, dealing weed. And his, <laughs> and his main characters were the Hells Angels out of uh, Oakland. Sonny uh, Barger and, you know, the founder of the Hells Angels. So, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was quite an education. It was, a, it was a liberal education, as they say. Yeah, gosh. Mm. And, and so you did your, your freshman, your sophomore, your junior, and then you dropped out in your senior year. So you were basically more than three quarters of the way through your degree. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I believe it or not, I had really good grades. <laughs> 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 but uh you know i um you know it was just that time you know it was it was just the alienation around but this is by like 1970 and you know the invasion of cambodia and you know with the assassinations that happened and and it was just uh it just seemed absurd and and at that point in my life i i really started to get an inkling that i wanted to be an artist of some kind some stripe and and I decided that, um, you know, r- romantic as, 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 as can be, I suppose, that, you know, I wanted to get as absolutely as far away from bourgeois life as I could get. And uh, so I ended up, you know, I, hitch- I hitchhiked across the country a couple times. Uh, ended up, I, I worked uh, as a roughneck uh, drilling for oil and natural gas in Texas. Uh, worked in a mental hospital in Tennessee. Uh, you know, that I wanted that kind of education where, you know, mm. I mean, I had no, no one to lean on, no one to call, you know, just, just put myself out there, you know, among the people and, uh, and kind of unlearn some things, you know, kind of unlearn this, unlearn a sense of privilege, a sense of, of entitlement that the kind of thing you get when you go to a real fancy prep school and then you go to Berkeley with, you know, more Nobel prize winners than any place in the world, you know, you get to thinking that you're, you know, you're pretty, pretty hot stuff. And I, 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 I kind of give myself a little bit of credit for that. Uh, now th- those are also called the wasted years, but <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's another way of looking at it. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, at, at some point I, I realized that, uh, you know, I could, I, I came to believe that I could write screenplays and uh, I uh, n- knew I was old enough by then. I was you know, getting to be 28, 29 years old. And I was old enough to know that I didn't know much and that this was going to be a pretty challenging thing to do. Uh, not a lot of cheerleaders guys, you know, when you announce that you're going to go to Hollywood, right? You know, there's, 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 there's a little bit, you know, there's the pity, 
there's the, uh, I don't, did I hear you right? You know, there's, you know, my parents were like, oh my God, you know, really, man. You know, you, you know, having graduated from school, uh, having got your degree, you know, what are you doing? You know, working in the oil fields. What are you doing, man? You know, <laughs> uh, and then, and now you're going to go to Hollywood. Right. Mm. And, but you know, looking back on it, you can say, well, you know, that kind of makes sense. You know, you did those things and why wouldn't you do something like that? But, you know, at the time, believe me, it was, it was, you know, and then I, you know, I was starting to have some kids with a lady and, and uh, you know, I had some responsibilities and, uh, you know, tough, uh, it was a tough game. And I, I knew, I knew it was going to take me, it was going to take me a long time, if at all, if I could even break into Hollywood. I knew nobody, mm. nobody. And, uh, so I said, look, um, Steph, you got 10 years, you know, you got 10 years to pull this off. If you can't, you know, go back to go to medical school or something. And, mm. and uh, I knew I needed to live in LA and survive, you know, cause I had a couple of kids by that time. And, um, I heard that they were dying for teachers who could speak Spanish. And so I, I went on a, Care learning Spanish, and it took like six or seven courses in Spanish. You know, but just taking two two at a time. And uh, I became I became fairly fluent in Spanish. And I went down to LA, went to the school district, and they said, "Sure, man, you know, you got a job." So that I had you know had my little toehold, and and, and uh, you know started you know this this process. You know, just learning everything I could learn. Uh, watching hundreds of films, reading screenplays, reading, you know, a lot of literature, a lot of literature, uh, talk, you know, starting to talk to some people that are at least on the fringes of Hollywood. And um, nine years and four months later, I was in Francis Ford Coppola's office, the director of The Godfather, and he was writing me a check. So, What was uh, that for? What was that for? That was for uh, the the uh, the, uh, the script I wrote that became Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with Robert De Niro and uh, mm. Bottom Carter and Kenneth Branagh. Um, uh, great, I mean it was great. We, you know, we made a lot of money, and and it, you know the, the movie made a hundred over a hundred million dollars. But it was it was it was a terrible disappointment for me and for Hollywood. Um, Branagh really, you know, he became sort of the metaphor for the movie himself, you know, he, uh, you know, he banned its executives from the set and, you know, he, he got crazy just like Victor Frankenstein, you know, he, he got crazy. He's, you know, he was married to Emma Thompson, lovely, you know, meanwhile, you know, he's shacking up with Helena Bonham Carter on the set. Everybody, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, it was just, it, it, it became a, a, a really scandalous situation. And, and this was the most expensive movie that had ever been shot in the UK at that time. Wow. Uh, mm. At Shepperton Studios. And uh, the the town was, oh, and then the, the, the premiere, I mean, by this time I, I had gotten a divorce, got married, got a divorce, remarried, married Sandra, my wife that you met. We were just barely married you know, when I pulled this off, got, you know, got in, finally made it in Hollywood. And, and it was one of the biggest premieres, and you know, even by Hollywood standards, Prince Charles was there. 
uh, everybody was there, man. I mean, Jack, <laughs> you know, it's it great. Right. This is a Hollywood. This is my this is my Hollywood moment, and this is this this will haunt me till the day I die. This is gonna be my last things like that. I say ah, I really messed this one up. I walked, I, you know, go, I go down the red carpet. I, you know, flash bulbs, the whole thing, right? Big deal. I walk in the room, and come, my eyes are adjusting, and there in the corner, sitting alone at the table, is Jack Nicholson with a six pack of beer. <laughs> wow! And I, you know, and I will always kick myself every time. Why didn't you go over there, mate? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to be uh, with Jack. yeah, to be with Jack. But um, it, it was it was very interesting. At the premiere, you know, everybody's there. Arnold's, I'm sitting with Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, uh, uh, Danny DeVito's right next to me, okay? And with all of the ego in Hollywood, for some odd reason, royalty is just gets them. <laughs> royalty, royalty is just too much. You know, it's the one thing they can't have, I guess. I don't know, right? Yeah. And they're like really intimidated because the prince is coming, right? So they would say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please rise. The prince is approaching the door, right? So everybody gets up. Uh, please sit back down. The prince has been delayed, right? So <laughs> and these are like every movie star. Arnold is there. I mean, you know, there are all these movie stars up, right? Up, down, up, down, right? So Simon says. <laughs> finally, exactly. So finally, Prince Charles comes in. He sits right behind me and Danny DeVito, right? <laughs> and Danny DeVito turns around and says, I don't care who you are, man. Don't kick my chair. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and Prince Charles said? <laughs> yeah, well, he, he was gracious. But, I mean, wow. God bless Danny. I mean, that, that Hollywood needed that so badly, yeah. uh, you know, to prick that bubble, you know, of, <laughs> of, of, of ridiculousness. So, so uh, after that magnificent, uh, uh, well, I guess, uh, premiere, um, debut, what happened next? Well, you know, I, um, I was just so crushed by, by what he had done to the movie. In fact, I have a very good friend who now runs Ellen DeGeneres' company, a guy named Jeff Kleeman. But very briefly, uh, Jeff taught at USC at University of Southern California Film School. And he said, you know, Steph, he says, I hope you don't mind, but I use your screenplay as, as the main text of my class in, at USC Film School. And I said, yeah, how is that? He goes, I use it to show them what can happen to a good script in the hands of a bad director. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Steph, I, I meant to ask you, what does a screenwriter do exactly? Like, what does it mean to be a screenwriter? I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, <laughs> 30, 30 years. Um, you know, we, you know, at our best, and we're the tail that wags the dog. Uh, every other, every other aspect, every other position in the making of a film is a derivative position. You know, everybody's working because of the script. No script, no movie. So we're the, we're the only really, you know, original creators in in the business. Now, 
you tell that to a director and he'll scream bloody murder, but uh, <laughs> it is a fact. Uh, and, and I remember when uh, I had my son, it was maybe 13, 14, he said, he said, wait a minute, do you actually make up what they say? I go, yes, son, I make up what they say. Because I thought they just made it up themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a screenplay is, is a, it's a blueprint, but, you know, it's, but more than a blueprint. And it's, um, you know, dialogue, not camera direction, but dialogue, you know, where, what, when, who, why. You create the characters, the story, um, and the dialogue. So it's a... It's a it's very literary in that sense. It's just an odd uh, format. Uh, I don't like to read them particularly. Uh, the way it's just, it's just, it's so condensed. Mm. And then, you know, I oftentimes, I, I won't give somebody a screenplay to read unless they really, really want to read one because you really, you got to really like kind of like focus in and say, okay, this is what I'm seeing on the screen, you know? Right. Mm. Whereas, you know, because I don't have the time that a novelist has to, you know, to lay it all out for you. I've got to, like, you know, give you an idea, you know. Interior detective's apartment, crummy, you know. And you're like, okay. Now, that's, that's an extreme example. Yes, yes, That's an extreme example, but do you, but you, do you get the picture? Yes, I, yes. I can picture the hotel room. <laughs> yeah, you know or what I mean? Apartment. Yeah. Yeah, crummy. And, 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 uh, it's not quite, that would be, you know, that's just to make a point, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, very, very condensed, uh, yeah. you know, five, you know, five liters in a four liter bottle. Yeah. That's, that's what makes a good screenwriter is the ability to, to synthesize, to capture the essence of a story and to make it visual. Mm-hmm. Steph, you said before that, um, you, you'd written your, first masterpiece after nine years and four months and mm-hmm. you were sitting in a uh, big Hollywood director's, uh, oh, sorry, you know, Hollywood producers, uh, offices, director, too. Yeah. director and, and, and he was giving you a large check. Um, I'm it wasn't bit, that much. No. Uh, okay. I was going to say, I'm a bit tempted to ask how much, but I, I'll leave that. No, that me. was no, you know, that was only 5,000 bucks. You know, that was okay. like, and that was just a handshake deal. Sure. Okay. You know, because I, Francis, Francis is a lovely guy. He's one of the most, one of the most, <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's a very, very fine human being, uh-huh. you know, uh, which is, I can't say for everyone in Hollywood, but when I met Francis, I was in the, uh, I, I was in the conference room with the, with the producer and he came in and uh, he said, are you, are you, are you the guy that, that wrote uh, the Frankenstein script? And I go, yeah, Francis. Yeah. And he goes, He's like, I haven't had a chance to read it, but this is how I see it. And he starts talking about it. And I realize he's, he's read my script. He's saying exactly what's in the script. <laughs> he goes, what do you think? I go, I like it. I like it, right? But there's, there's a bit of a funny story that comes out of this, okay? So Francis says, look, do you need any money? Oh, yeah, that'd be great, Francis. You know, I got like five bucks, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to give you $5,000, just no contract and things. So you got some, some spending money, right? And then we'll work, out, we'll work out the deal with, you know, later. I mean, only a, only a really cool guy would do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I recently saw Francis two years ago, had a glass of wine with him. 
And I said, you know, Francis, you won't remember this, but that check you gave me for $5,000, the first money I made in Hollywood, he goes, oh no, man, don't tell me it bounced. (laughs) (laughs) I said, no, 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 no. No, I went, I, I went straight to the bank, you know, poor boy, right? I went straight to his bank, which is about five blocks away. You know, it's just, you know, just very impressive, you know, Victorian institution with pillars. And I say, I got this check from Francis Ford Coppola. They call security. Oh my God. Huh? And they, yeah, they call security. <laughs> you sit down, man. So they guarded me while they called back up to Zoetrope to his company to see <laughs> to see whether it was forgery. Wow. That was like welcome to Hollywood. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh wow! So when when you sell a script like that, um, you know, I, I presume a lot of time and effort goes into the writing of these scripts. Uh, although some of the shows I see on TV today maybe don't get so much time put into them, but back in the day. You sell off a script, you sell it to a producer or director or a movie house, as it were. What role do you play after that? Do you have any creative control at all? Because you talked about it being a disaster. So presumably you're not as in touch with it at that point. You know, every every movie is its own story and every every time that happens, you know, you as a writer... Uh, you might stay all the way. You might stay. You might stay on the on the project even onto the set, mm. depending on the director. Um, or you might. The first thing that might happen, for example, I wrote the I wrote the script for Doctor Doolittle at 20th Century Fox, and um, when Eddie Murphy came onto that project, um, they said, uh, "You're done." Uh, Eddie only works with his own writers. Mm. And they completely changed the script. You know, I mean, I got paid and everything, and I was made a producer. But so, I mean, anything can happen. I mean, yeah. it's just, um, and then sometimes you get where, you know, and I don't do this, and I, I, I've never gotten into this game. Most screenwriters in Hollywood, and there aren't very many feature screenwriters, they work on the basis of assignments. You know, so your agent calls and says, "Oh, so and so's got a got a project. Go talk to him. See, see, you know." And and they're looking for work essentially, right? And they go, "Hey, I, I got this thing. What do you think?" Or and then you know, and they'll say, "Oh, oh, oh I've got a script, but it's not working." Right? Well, you might find out you're like maybe the eighth or ninth guy that's worked on that script. Mm. And that I did not. I never wanted to do that. Uh, but you know, it's it's quite lucrative if you if you can you know if you can be one of those guys can be quite lucrative i i i i tried it and i started doing it and i was you know the money was great but i just found absolutely no satisfaction in it it's mm. very, very odd but um so you know you know you might oh geez man i know there was a movie <laughs> i i was i was having i worked with bob dylan's son jesse dylan for a couple of years he he optioned, as we say, he bought a screenplay of mine, mm. and 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 we worked on trying to set it up, and ultimately it didn't happen. But I got to hang with Jesse a lot, and um, he was telling me that the movie Up Close and Personal with Robert Redford and mm. Michelle Pfeiffer, 
was in its 27th rewrite. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there's this, anything, anything can happen. Uh, mm. I don't, I don't play that game. I write almost 90% of anything I do is, uh, is I come up with it on my own. Mm. Uh, I do. There is a producer that I work with right now that, and, and, and I've been working with him for four or five years. If he has something, I, I'll, I'll work with him because I know him. I know he has good taste, but I just don't, I don't do that. Um, um, and the last, the last big, you know, original that I, that I wrote and sold was in, in, in 2018, May, 2018 to the producers of Slumdog Millionaire and Life of Pi. Wow. So I just got off the phone with them this weekend and, you know, COVID has kind of slowed things down a bit, but they're, you know, they're pushing ahead with getting it, you know, getting it cast and financed. Um, so, you know, you keep your fingers crossed. I mean, you know, you know just, there's no, there's no way to know, you know, from what's going to get to the box office. You know, I've, I've sold 13, 14, 15 scripts, but I've only gotten two movies made. Now, part of that is just luck. I mean, you mm-hmm. just, you know, you don't know. Uh, uh, I had, I had, I had a wonderful script. Uh, someone was asking me about this the other day. It's it on the, on the morning after Wendy Fireman, the producer of Forrest Gump got her Oscar. She called me on the phone the next morning, says, I'm in the, I'm in the car, which means the limo. I'm in the car, with my Oscar on my lap. And I'm going to Hawaii, and yours is the next movie I'm going to make. We set that up at Columbia TriStar. It was great. You know, she's got her, her Oscar. She's hot. Um, a new head of production at, at TriStar, Chris Lee. I read in the paper, Chris is now the, the head of uh, Columbia TriStar. 10 o'clock, the phone rings. He goes, Steph, I just want you to, let, to know my first decision as head of production at, at the studio is to greenlight your movie. Wow. Never got made. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> That's Never a great green lot. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, so you just don't know, you know, uh, uh-huh. uh, how it's going to go. You, you know, you keep your fingers crossed. But so, uh, I keep so, doing it. So, Steph, uh, you, you sound like you're living the dream in Hollywood, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, as close as anyone in Darwin could imagine what life might be like over there. And... What caused you to think about coming to Australia? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, on one hand, um, my son, Matt, um, came over here for university. Um, he first came to Australia doing some environmental work up in Queensland, planting trees, and fell in love with Australia and, and, and had a girlfriend and and um, came back and said uh, he had had two years of two years of college and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And then he went to Australia and he went to Australia and he lived in Hawaii for about six months, came back and said, okay, I'm going to go to law school, but I'm going to go and go, I'm going to go to uni in Australia. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, you know, Australia really wasn't on, on my radar particularly. Uh, but he did, and he came over here and was very, very successful. He became the captain of the law school debating team at University of Adelaide. Uh, went to uh, got a, got another master's degree from University of Melbourne and another master's degree from University College of London. So he, you know, and and 
became very ossified, you know. <laughs> so we'd come over and visit, and, uh, and being a lawyer is persuasive. And he would say, you know, look, mate, uh, it's better over here. It's better. It's better. Better place to live. Why? It is. Why? Why? It is. It is. Well, six months ago, guys, if if I'd have sat down with you and had a beer or whatever and started ragging on telling you all the problems of the United States and and how there were serious, serious uh, underlying uh, infrastructural problems with that democracy, you you know you might have taken it with a grain of salt. You know, he's just a disgruntled American or whatever, you know, an America basher. But uh, thanks to COVID-19, <laughs> you, won't, you won't find it so hard to believe me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, 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 it pulled the mask away uh, mm-hmm. of this, of this a, quote, a, a, exceptional country. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I didn't come to Australia to, to, to bash America, but I, I don't think anyone needs to now. I should, the whole world should see now that we have, uh, we, that they, I'm, I'm going to become an Australian, <laughs> that, uh, that you know, there are very, very serious problems over there. Um, problems of inequality, problems of racism. The political system is completely uh, rigged and corrupted. Um, neither party, uh, in my opinion, is, is, is capable of governing. Uh, mm. I mean, I, I like Barack, you know, I voted for Barack, but uh, and Barack you know, was able to do very little, if you look at it. Um, and 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 look at it now. I mean, you know, Trump. Of course, when we got our permanent residency in Australia, um, Barack was president. Um, but when we decided to move, Trump was president. And of course, everybody <laughs> everybody said, "My God, brilliant!" Full <laughs> sight. <laughs> yeah, they go, "Wow," you know, like you know, and 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 and, and I tell you honestly. We didn't walk around, you know, wound Australia, you know, we, we didn't, you know, that was just not going not gonna to be, but, you know, there came a time when we were leaving and, you know, we, we, we made it very clear that we're leaving <laughs> to our friends, family, and so forth. And, and I can tell you, honestly, guys, not one American, not one said to me, why? Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. That, uh... Uh, it was all a variation of, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, can it still be done? <laughs> you got a spare form. Well, exactly. You know, uh, Steph, listening to that, it, 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 it does actually, I mean, I mean, I'm obviously delighted that you chose to come to Australia and, you know, and, and very, you know, feel, feel very flattered by the comments that you've made about the country. Um, um, I think Australians tend to be a little self-deprecating when it comes to the country, and I understand that, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but I do feel a sense of loss and a sense of sadness because for the whole time that I was growing up, uh, you know, we looked to America and Americans as being the leaders, mm-hmm. as being, uh, you know, um, something to aspire to uh and it's only in a very short space of time over my lifetime that it feels like it particularly over the last three years 
it just feels like that rug has been pulled out from the collective world. Yes. Would you say so, Pete? And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, America's always talked about as a superpower and, you know, they've always been um, a leader when it comes to conflicts around the world. Um, not that you necessarily want to use that as your, your yardstick for it, but I think financially they have been as well. Um, but, yeah, I, I would agree with that sentiment, Leon. I don't know quite what it is, but I just feel a slight level of discomfort when I hear that China's taking over the mantle from America, and I'm not saying that from a racist standpoint or whatever, but I just think that... Um, we, we always felt we knew what we were getting with the United States and probably the UK as well, but it, it, it doesn't feel like that now. Well, it, it's, it, it's the world is changing right before our eyes, um, you, know, um, you, know, as the, you know, as they say, you know, the, the days of American hegemony are over. Hmm. Uh, America has a, you know, ridiculously powerful military but not strong enough to push anybody around that you know worth pushing around they're not going to push russia around they're not going to push china around not going to happen um and you know when you're spending 10 times more on your military than the next nine countries combined you know you're putting a lot of chips in one basket uh, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, the world is, the new world is going to be run by soft power, uh, as much as, as military power. And, and I, and I think the Chinese are pretty sharp, uh, in that, in that game. Mm. Uh, you know, all those, all the investments they're making in Africa and, and so forth, uh, you know, China's playing the long game and, and they, they have learned, uh, and they've also tasted the boot, you know, just, just the other day, just reading again about the opium wars and how brutally they were treated by the British. Uh, mm. You know, they've tasted the boot and, and um, you know, I wish them well. I mean, I, uh, I you know, I think Australia is going to have to walk the tightrope, you know. Um, mm, very much so. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned- not going to go away. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, your son was in Adelaide. Is he still yeah. there in Adelaide? Yeah, he is. They 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 were in Paris for two years. Um, he and his wife uh, were in Paris for two years, and they just got back last June. And he's down there. He works for the uh, Australian Energy Regulators, kind of government agency that kind of watchdog over the energy companies. Right. Right. Um, so how did you end up in Darwin then? Well, I, that was my wife's thing. I mean, her her company, uh, Anschultz, in, in the United States is called was called Anschultz Entertainment. They own Staples Center, LA Convention Center, you know, uh, Denver Bronco. You know, they're really, really, mm-hmm. really big, big deal. They, you know, the, the big O in London, that's Anschultz Entertainment. Out here, they made a partner partnership that was called Anschultz Ogden. And they mm. uh, they operate the Sydney Convention Center, Brisbane, um, Perth, Melbourne, and Darwin. Mm. And so my wife was, was director of sales at the LA Convention Center. And so when we came over here, they said, "Well, would you, 
would you be interested in going to Darwin? We have a position up there. <laughs> she, she put the phone, she, she <laughs> muted the phone and said, where the hell is it? <laughs> Google, where is Darwin? <laughs> <laughs> but I had been here. I had been here. My son and I flew up here uh, uh, on one of my trips over. So I said, yeah, 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 let's go. It's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, and pray tell, what month of the year did you arrive? <laughs> we, arrived in, we arrived in June, but la- June 2018, but it was a very hot, dry season. Right. Mm. Uh, it was not like today. Uh, yeah. It was very, very <laughs> hot. And, my, you know, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and, she, you know, she and my wife were like, oh, my God, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> We've all had that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she likes working here? She likes living here now? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, I think the place grows on you. I really do. Um, you know, of course, a lot of the things that, people in Darwin complain about are the things I love, you know, no <laughs> traffic, no freeways, you know, only one Bunnings, you know, it's, 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 it's terrific, you know, uh, and, and we, we, we have a lovely place overlooking the Harbor. And, and so it's really very, very happy. Um, and have you been uh, deploying your, you know, superb skills in screenwriting uh, to the benefit of the local population? I did uh, Screen Territory. Uh, I, I've done some work with them. They were, they've been very cordial, lovely people, Jenny Hughes and, and uh, Seb Ankhorn. Um, they, they, uh, I mentored a young lady in, uh, in Alice Springs last year through them. Um, went to, the, went, went to uh, MIF down in the, the Melbourne International Film Festival, went to that uh, under, on kind of with their blessing last year um and that's i guess that's that's kind of it i mean i am working on a project up here um but um independent of of them at this point independent of them uh with a story of the croker island exodus uh, 19 1942 uh margaret somerville um young Sydney woman led 92 Aboriginal children, mostly girls walked from uh, the coast of Arnhem land to Alice Springs, uh, fleeing, fleeing the the bombing of of Darwin. So the Japanese were bombing Croker Island as well, were they? They were flying right over it, uh, you know, to come into Darwin and, 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 you know, they had built this, you know, they had made this huge white cross on the beach to try to discourage them from, from, <laughs> from bombing. Um, but, but at the same time, they, they were running out of food. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they were just kind of abandoned out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a great story. It's, um, the former chief minister of, uh, of the territory, like in about 1992 or so forth, when Margaret was still alive, had they had a ceremony celebrating her and the survivors and the, the Aboriginal, you know, Aboriginals had survived that. And he, he described it as Australia's greatest story of love and compassion. Uh, and, 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 and I've had the, the, the privilege of meeting, uh, three of the, uh, survivors, the three, uh, there's only, I think there's only five left. I've met three of them and spent a lot, quite a bit of time with them, listening to them, you know, 
reminisce about mm. this this amazing exodus, this walk across, uh, you know, uh, Kakadu. You know, I mean, mm. uh, you know, fording fording the Adelaide River in, in fifty five gallon gas drums. Right? Gee. How did they manage not to get eaten by crocodiles? That that was what the gas drum was for. <laughs> wow. You know, they would put two of them in the gas drum and then pull it across the, you know, pull it across the river. Um, but yeah, meeting these, meeting these ladies is uh, really, really something. Uh, I bet. And so you're turning that into a story, are you? Yeah, to a screen, to a feature screenplay. And I've got, I have a, an Aboriginal co-writer on this one, which is, 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 is you know, necessary. Uh, really, a really, really cool, uh, very talented young man from South Australia. Mm. Steph, um, what's something, uh, I guess, that you consider uniquely Australian that, that you love about the way uh, we do things versus perhaps what it was like back home? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many things, Peter. I'm, first of all, I find Australians to be very boisterous, very friendly. Mm. Um, much more so than Americans. It's not that Americans are unfriendly. Australians are just friendly. Yep. Uh, especially, and I think probably especially territorians. Um, there's just, there's just com- coming from the United States in, in this time, there's so little angst here. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and I, I mean, I say straight up, I say you Aussies have no idea how lucky you are. That's mm-hmm. all, man. You have no idea. You know, um, I, you know, I, I know some of the criticisms. I've, you know, I, th- I think Australia is a bit of a nanny state, and I know a lot of people kind of, you know, chafe under that. And I, that's reasonable. Um, but um, it's um, this is an easy place to live. It's you know, it's uh, you know, after after you know, my entire lifetime in the United States. Um, just the ease with which mm. things proceed here. Uh, people seem to be less anxious, uh, less uh, judgmental, uh, led more trusting, I guess. I mean, mm. even the, even the, you know, the, maybe Americans would think, you know, every, of course, every time I call American or I call Hollywood, Oh, Hey mate, you know, and that's yeah. something they know, right. You know, yeah. but yet even that term, you know, which, you know, we don't have a comparable term in the United States. Right. Yeah. There's, there's no, it, it's a bonding. It's a bonding word, right? Mm, yep. And, and I, I know you can criticize it and you can say that it's nonsense and you can say that it's, it's chauvinist, and, but, but, it, but day to day it's not, you know, mm. in my, in, in my observation. And we don't, we don't have, a, we don't have a, any place to hang that, that sense of brotherhood, that sense of, 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 of you know, fellows, fellowship. Mm. We don't have that in the United States. What, well, dude? <laughs> I mean, buddy? You know? Yeah, buddy. You know, but buddy, you see, buddy is a double-edged, double-edged yeah, term. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that has a little bit of edge to it because, yeah. you know, I could be confronting you with yeah. that. But yeah, no yeah. one ever, I don't think you know, anyone's been, ever been confronted with mate. <laughs> Actually, Pete, what do you reckon? I reckon you might be able yeah, to do that, eh? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it depends on the tone that you use. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. I, I remember um, I'd been overseas for a couple of years and we came back to visit my wife's grandmother and, and she lived in a small town of Victoria which has about 5,000 people or something like that. And we went to the local race club where, where we were having dinner and we had arrived early and my wife went out to get something out of the car. And I'd literally got off a plane sort of that day We'd driven up to the country. We'd just been in the car with ourselves and I was sitting on the couch at the front of the race club waiting for everyone to come inside and this old guy came in. He was probably probably close to 80 or something like that and he looked at me. I'd never seen the bloke before in my life and he just said, G'day, mate. How are you? And I just thought to myself, geez, I'm home, aren't I? Because <laughs> some complete stranger didn't think twice about saying to me, G'day, mate. How are you going? And kept walking, didn't break stride. Mm-hmm. But that's that's so uniquely Australian, I would say. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, it's 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 so cordial. Um, yeah, another example, and I know a lot of Australians, you know, have speak about this with a bit of derision, is when you have the welcome to country ceremony or the welcome to country statements. Mm-hmm. They go, okay, it's token. It's it's, it's just tokenism. Okay, mm-hmm. and and I understand that argument. But I promise you, in America, there's nothing. They didn't. They didn't exist. Yeah. They didn't exist. They had. There is no recognition of them whatsoever. Mm. Uh, of our of our indigenous people. So, you know, my take, and I don't, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna about it, but my take on it is like, hey, it's a start. Mm, yeah. It's a start of 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 of, of recognition. Is the beginning. You know, uh, of 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 brotherhood, really. You know, mm. first I got first I got to unobjectify you, mm. and, and 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 embrace you as 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 a brother, as a human being. Then anything's possible, right? Mm. So just stuff like that. I mean, that, which Australians probably think, ah, you know, but I I, was, I just I find it be quite moving, frankly. Mm. It's uh, funny uh, you should bring that up because I um. You know, welcome to country is not something that uh, we grew up with, I don't think, did we, Pete? I mean, it's really only happened in the last 10 years, would you say? Maybe a bit longer? Yeah. Uh, It sort of snuck in there. I I don't know how it started. Uh, I'll probably have to look it up to to tell you. Um, But, but, uh, you know, on the subject of Aboriginality, and we talked about racism in the US and Missouri and all that, and whilst, you know, Australia wasn't founded, uh, you know, on, on, on slavery, I mean, there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of racism historically. I mean, the whole Aboriginal population of Tasmania was wiped out completely. Exactly, I'm aware um, of that. So uh, you, you know that that has happened. But uh, you know, as as a migrant or or or, a, or you know a, a child of migrant parents that have come that's come to this country, I do lament my education that is completely bereft of any uh, uh, Aboriginal teaching or any teaching about Aboriginal culture. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, when we had Tracy Hayes on the podcast the other day and she said she went to school uh, for two years to an Aboriginal school in Central Australia and learned to speak Pitjantjara, I was shocked, Uh, you know, because I didn't even think there was such a thing as an Aboriginal school. I mean, have you heard of that before, Pete? So my um, my sister-in-law's aunt, believe it or not, 
spent about 30 years in the Northern Territory. She's, she's um, a white lady from Victoria, but she specialised, or if that's such a thing, she's actually a nun, but she um, sort of dedicated her life towards not losing the Aboriginal languages that are lost. I mean, there, there's thousands of them thousands of them and many of them are extinct because people don't use them or you know, the, the tribes or the clans die off and so she yeah I, I did know that because she's she used to go out bush you know every week for a couple of days specifically to these schools to help these kids to retain their their indigenous languages but mm. I was shocked that a white girl would go to an Aboriginal school and be able to learn an indigenous language yeah so whilst, um, you know, whilst your sentiments are, you know, are welcome, Steph, um, as, as, a, as an Australian, I feel we've still got a long way to go. I mean, you look at New Zealand uh, and they actually have a treaty with the Maori. Uh, I'm, I'm totally aware. No, they're yeah. ahead. They're way ahead. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm coming from zero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> zero. True. And... Uh, and you know, and I have Native American heritage, so you know, mm. um, yeah, absolute zero. Um, it's as though they they were never there, you know. Mm. Uh, that you know, I mean, maybe at a national monument you might see something, but generally speaking, they are they're completely invisible. But no, Australia is you know has its own has its own case of it. There's no question, and mm. Australian history is is you know checkered with some some pretty pretty bad stories tasmania being one of them mm. but uh, you know when in the united states i mean you know we had slavery we had that all going on at the same time and uh, i don't think that the country's ever really recovered from it um mm. and even now with the covid uh pandemic uh the navajos are being wiped out right. really wow yeah, yeah. wow Hey, Steph, um, it, this is full question without notice, and we're probably not on this track at the moment, but I did just want to ask one question because I think, you know, people from the Territory would be amazed to hear that someone who who has been involved with the, the Hollywood scene for so many years um, and obviously come across many people along the way, can you name one celebrity that everybody would know, household name, who is exactly what you would expect them to be like because we hear so many bad stories and, you know, you mentioned Ellen DeGeneres earlier and there's so much coming out about her at the moment. Yeah. You hear about these celebrities who outwardly have such a great reputation but, you know, privately they're complete dickheads. Mm -hmm. But who, who, who is just like you'd expect them to be that, that you can think of? Arnold is exactly what you know. What you see is what you get. There's there's no there's no other side of Arnold Schwarzenegger other yeah. than uh, the, the the child that he fostered uh, <laughs> quietly for many many years. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but to Arnold's credit, I mean, he's totally yeah. embraced the kid. Yeah. He he appears in public with him. He, uh, you know, he he he's 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 done about as good as as I suppose anyone can do with that situation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I think Arnold. Uh, I think Arnold is is what you see is what you get, um, mm. and and very contradictory man. Um, in some ways, um, 
conservative. He's a, he's a so-called Republican, but he, in other ways, he's very, very progressive. Yeah. Very strong environmentalist. Um, um, you know, he makes his kids do their own wash. You know, he, he you know, he's, he's, he's pretty real, you know. And just to be clear, we're talking Arnold Schwarzenegger, not Arnold Horshack, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, there were some good sitcoms back in the seventies, weren't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, my my wife uh, worked for Sandra worked uh, with Arnold and Maria Schreiber for about five years, so you know, I, I really did get a good sense of of who they were. Mm. Um, other than you know, other than other Hollywood people that you know one rubs elbows with, you know. Mm. Uh, but I, I, you know, I've been to their home and been to parties there and stuff, and they're they're pretty much the way you would think they would be. Oh, uh, well, our own lawyer, American lawyer Brad Torgan, whom you've met, yeah, also, also worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, oh, that's so, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So it's a small. Yeah. Um, and and again, as I've already mentioned, you know Francis Coppola, and 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 there is nobody more respected in Hollywood than Francis Ford yeah. Coppola. He's an icon, and he he's he's a sweetheart. You know, mm. he's he's absolutely genuine, um, straight up guy. You know, Steven uh, Spielberg. Uh, you know, I, I've. I've passed Stephen in the hall. Like that's 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 all I can say. You know, right. uh, don't uh, never never uh, really spoke with him. Been, been spoke to a lot of people in his company, but not Stephen. Mm. Every time seen, like, he was usually in New York. All he, you know, he had Amblin was on the Universal lot, but he was always in New York. Uh, that's where he lives. So no, mm. never never hung with him. Um, you know, and um, you know, another thing too is that. You know, I, I I would say if you really want to talk about celebrities, you, you, my wife knows more celebrities than I do <laughs> because she did she did red carpet events at Universal for ten years. She was she was vice president of Universal Studios, and she and she was doing red carpet events. She and we'll have to uh, get her on. I think she's got a very she's got a very interesting story about how you met too, which she, she told me at lunch once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we can make that story better. You know? <laughs> we, we tell the truth, but we tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, she would, we lived, literally, you could walk to Universal Studios from where our house is and was. And, you know, she would call me, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's a bread carpet tonight. Come on, you go to the party. And I'd be like, nah, that's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I never... I've never, I've never been impressed with Hollywood. You know, mm -hmm. um, don't get me wrong. I, you know, many people there I admire, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm, it's, I don't know. It's just not in my DNA. I, I, I you know, maybe it's healthy. I don't take myself that seriously. You know, are you are you familiar with uh, the series Entourage? Of course. Who the hell is Ari Gold based on? He's based on Ari Emanuel. The, the, okay. Yeah, the founder of Endeavor. Yeah, okay. uh, his brother Rahm Emanuel was mayor of Chicago and also worked with you know, worked in the Brock's White House. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it's uh, that's Ari Emanuel. Because yeah. it, it it has to be a personality. He is just you know, so unique and so uh, you know there's, there's so many bits to him, but it it just has to be based on an actual person that role. 
he, he's a, I, I've never, I've never, I, I, I was not signed by Endeavor. I was with CAA, it's, mm. it's rival, but okay. uh, I never, never crossed with Ari, but you know, Hollywood is such a small town. I mean, you mm. have no idea. It, it's, I, I would, it was like, you would say, oh, I'm, uh, I, I've got to go. Uh, I, I've got another meeting. They go, yeah, I know you've got a meeting at Disney. You know, you know, from another. I know, I know, I know what you're doing. I mean, everybody knows everything, and it's 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 it's, it's incestuous in that respect, right? Mm. And and uh, you know, you do you you know you you work there for a while. You 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 get a run. You you're basically going to run into everybody. <laughs> you know, they're just. It's a very small community. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, Steph, um, it's just been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Um, no, you're very you're, kind. You're, very, you're a very unique uh, guest, uh, given your background, given what you bring to the Territory, and I, for one, feel uh, very um, grateful that you've chosen to come here uh, mm. with all the experience that you bring, uh, and I do hope that... Uh, uh, through this podcast, uh, you find yourself connected to more people uh, and that people that uh, come to know you through this um, might be able to connect the dots and, uh, and, and certainly explore how, you know, we might be able to work with you. And when I say we, I'm talking about the Territory, uh, to, to benefit from all that experience. Well, you're very kind and it's been great speaking with both of you and uh, thanks for letting us in. Thanks for joining us, Steph, on the Territory Story Podcast. We'll catch you next time. See you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.